This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Trevor Horn, multi-million selling record producer, guitarist and live performer, is woven into the fabric of our modern pop culture. Think I'm exaggerating? And you remember the jingles used to go. Like this. Kate Thornton and Gary Davis, presenters on two different national radio stations, open their shows with unmistakable Trevor themed idea. When I told Trevor this, that he's intrinsic to today's music scene, he said, Really? I don't feel like that. Well, I love Trevor Horn, and I've come to know him well-ish. I see him quite a lot, and this is a lovely interview, encompassing quite detailed analysis of the making of his greatest records, and the discussion is built around his autobiography, Adventures in Modern Recording. We also have some very touching memories of his late wife, Jill. In fact, it's the second time I've sat down with Trevor and the first interview couldn't have been more different to this one. I got quite interested in the Jewish faith and I read a lot about it. You know, I read, and it it seems to me, (laughs) once you get to know Jews and you read the Torah, it all starts to make sense. Jews kind of live it. They live a lot of it. So I never eat. You know, I haven't eaten anything, never have anything trafe in the house. I thought of uh, converting to Judaism a few times because um, I believe in it much more than I would believe in pretty much anything else. Scroll back and download episode 43 for this. And I see Trevor because we attend the same synagogue. He's a regular. He's not Jewish. Jill was and so his children are. This is what I've come to know about him. He's a fighter who'd never raise a fist. He's fiercely loyal to his friends and repays kindness. He has an instinct for people, honed by working with literally all comers from the pop world, from Grace Jones to Frankie. He's highly self-driven, with a work ethic to match, born of professional loneliness, he says, He says when you don't have a boss, you need your own discipline and self-motivation. And he doesn't stop working. Not content to rest on his laurels, he lifts the lid on working with some of the greatest stars, including stories from Paul about the Beatles, how the art of reinvention gives musicians longevity, and so much more. And he sings and plays imaginary keyboards to parts of songs he made famous... Now, he does come across a bit of anti-Zionism in his profession, so we start with a typically pugnacious Trevor, talking tough, only tough mind, about other rock names. I know there's a few people, I mean, you know, even Brian Eno. Yes, he's, he's proposed to me, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, a couple of times I thought, if I see Brian Eno, I'll say, come on, <laughs> outside. <laughs> right? Come on, 
You see, you see, that's what I love about you. I mean, you do love to talk a scrap. I don't think you would raise your hands, but you love to. Th- oh, I'd, love to I'd love to. I'd love to give him a, 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 a you know. A yeah, clop. You know what it is. You know what it is. It's these <laughs> rich, pampered rock stars. I mean, of which, of course, I am one. I'm sure. Um, who comment on other on the politics? They should keep their noses out of politics. You want to do politics? It's a different different life. But you're grounded. You're a you're a different character. I don't really know Roger Waters or Brian Eno either, but Brian Eno strikes me as more like a college professor type. Um, you know, like somebody who lectures at the university. Mm. The man who invented the 80s. Welcome once again to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. All right. That's what the podcast called, is it? Uh, my podcast, yeah, Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thankful again for your time today. You were my seventh interviewee in the series... And now we're into the hundreds with a live stream radio station playing out 24-7. Oh, it's wow. going places. Thank you very oh, much for coming on the journey with me. Right. I'm absolutely delighted that in your Wikipedia entry, a reference that came out of our podcast last time is now part of your Wikipedia biography. Really? What's that? Very powerful words, which is, I believe in Judaism more than I believe in anything else. Oh, right. Well... Wow. As long as you remember saying it. I probably did. <laughs> no, me. Trevor, you're, you're an inspiration to me in that you have an appetite for creating. You're always involved in new projects, be they orchestral albums, live tours, performances. You've written an autobiography and getting the band together as well. The Buggles supporting your good friend Seal. You have an appetite for life. It's, it's more than just the music. It's, it's to be able to continue your work. Well, I mean, what are you meant to do when you get old? Stop. I mean, I'm sure I'll have to stop one day. You know, everyone does. But until you're forced to stop, I think it's best to keep going. You know, that way. I just can't imagine it at the moment, but I'm sure I will. In my 30s, I had this crackpot idea that I'd like to retire one day with pots of money... I was super ambitious. I still am ambitious, but I'm ambitious to work now. Mm. I'm ambitious to create. I, you know, God willing, I'm going to continue doing this. Um, as long as you can. As long as I can. And um, keep building it and, and growing it. How is the preparation for an American tour going on right now? Well, for some, you can realise we're doing, I think, 16 songs with Seal. It's going to be somewhere in the region of... A, uh, it'll be an eight-piece band with Seal as the ninth person, I guess. Uh, so it's a fair amount of work. The first thing I've been doing is going through all the multi-tracks and reducing them, you know, to stems so that we can, you know, so, so that we, we can um, consult the actual uh, multi-track. You know, that's where all the stuff's recorded on different tracks. That's for Seal, but for the for the Buggles, it's been slightly different. Buggles are only going to be playing on this tour for half an hour. Half an hour is normally seven songs. Maybe it, it half an hour is a difficult time period actually because it's somewhere between six and seven songs. Um, so at the moment, I've managed to find six that I'm prepared to play. So. Step into the party like my name is Mr. 
Does that mean longer links in the middle of songs and a few more Trevor jokes? Maybe. Uh, or maybe we <laughs> might have to do another, you know, we might have to get another song and keep the set quick. I don't know yet. Okay. Let's start with your autobiography, Adventures in Modern Recording. It's your life as a driving force of music production. It's written around tracks, but not just the tracks that you were involved in, but tracks from childhood, uh, culminating in the Princess Trust concert at Wembley Arena, a real celebration of the stars that you helped to make famous or continued their body of successful work. Yeah. And there are some lovely anecdotes and lovely stories in there. And you've got a very good memory, very detailed memory of your life. As you were writing it down, I, I can imagine that you couldn't write quick enough for all the memories that must have flooded back as you were recalling your life on tracks. Well, the surprising thing about remembering things is how wrong you can occasionally be. <laughs> um, because I, you know, and nothing, I mean, there's nothing that irritates me more than hearing people talking about my truth, you know. And, you know, I, I just, I don't get that expression, my truth. But it is surprising how how um, you you may remember an incident one way, and um, everyone else remembers it slightly differently. It's also, however hard you try, there's also a tendency to, to for one people. It's sort of it, it it's almost like mission creep. You start to take credit for things that you don't really, shouldn't really take credit for. Because if you cast your mind back, it was somebody else's suggestion or something like that. Yeah. So you've got to be—one has to be very careful. Well, um, yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you about uh, this idea of, of of my truth, which um, is sort of like copyright Meghan Markle. Yeah. Um, but there's there's real truth, and then there's opinion. Yeah. There, yeah. I mean, there's only meant to be one truth, isn't there? Well, you'd hope so. Yeah. Otherwise, it's uh, going to be a problem, you know. It's like saying, God, God, this is my truth. You've all got to be good. And the devil, this is my truth. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, it's, it's written in your voice. I, I ask everyone who's a Trevor fan to enjoy and buy Adventures in Modern Recording because it's, it's written in, in your voice as well, isn't yeah, it? No, I mean, it's I very true to, to you. I to try you. to do it like that, yeah. Yeah, with the humour and the, yeah. the pithy observations. You told me last time that if you have a passion for something, you'll always find a way of doing it. You always loved music, and it started with the family gramophone at home in Stonebridge, just outside Durham. Yeah, yeah, we had a gramophone. I used to listen to records on it, but those were the days when gramophones went at 78 RPM, revs a minute, and and the discs were actually made of sort of shellac or they something. They could have broken. Oh, they did, frequently. Um, and they didn't sound very good. The bandwidth wasn't wasn't great. I mean that was the interesting thing when the when the sort of forty five first came out, it was so much smaller, so much lighter, and it sounded loads better. I don't know why that was. In fact, that's something I should look up to see why it sounded so much better. But um, you know, I guess part of it would have been the fact that that that, that it was. Uh, you know, I think I think the previous gramophone that we had was may have been a wind up. Wow. People weren't sort of, you know, I mean, one of the, I mean, you, you, you don't remember the 50s. I remember the 50s. Nobody had anything mm. in the 50s. Everyone was poor. Well, certainly poor up north. When I say poor, I mean way poorer than people are now. There just wasn't much stuff around because we were too busy paying America back. All the money we'd borrowed in the war. Mm. 
It all started to change in the 60s. Um, but, you know, like now, every, now there's so much more of everything. It's like we've got so much more of everything. But, but back, back then, just getting a record, you'd buy a record and just keep playing it over and over again. I mean, in 60, was it 64 or 65, I bought a, I bought a seven inch of Like a Rolling Stone. I must have played it ten times a day for the first sort of two weeks. I couldn't believe how good it sounded. I am from the end of that generation right. where you appreciated things. So uh, I wasn't brought up with a gramophone. I was brought up with something called a record player yeah. with an AM, FM and shortwave radio on the side, lovely piece of wood with Ferranti written on it with the oh, two yeah. stereo speakers either side. We had to get into the middle of them to enjoy the full stereo. 45, 78s, and 33 and a thirds. Yeah. Uh, but it still played the 78s, and I do remember some of the 78s, and I do remember realising as a nine-year-old breaking them and realising that they were much more fragile than the modern records. Yeah. And you describe your tight-knit family with lots of love, your dad, John, your mum, Elizabeth, or Betty Lampton, as you told Betty. me last time. Betty, Betty Horn. There's another Betty, Betty Horn, actually. My, my granddaughter's called Betty Horn. How lovely. Named after your... Yeah, named after How lovely. A baby sister, Marge, and a younger brother, Ken. Yeah. Very tight-knit family. Was that typical of life in a Durham town at the time? Well, it was people had kids, you know, there were lots of kids around. I mean, they call it baby boomers. It was after the war. Everyone was trying to stock up more people. We'd lost lots of people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Was it really like that? Yeah. Yeah, you're kidding. After I mean, was that the talk? We'd better regenerate no, our England. something I realised in the 60s. Right. Because I suddenly realised there were so many of us um, that, you see, nothing really changed in the 50s. And nothing changed in the first half of the 60s. Everything was really old-fashioned and boring. Even, the, you know, the Beatles in 63, I'd heard of them, but the, the only way... Sorry. All these noises. It's, yeah, that's you wouldn't problem. tolerate that at uh, your studio, would you? I wouldn't hear it. You wouldn't hear it. That's the soup for tomorrow, isn't it? Is it? I think it sounds like a mixer. Be. It might be an next door's cast. Like no, it's a mixer. Yeah, it's finished. There you go. Not that kind of mixer. No, different. <laughs> a food mixer. <laughs> Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a fertility rate problem in in Israel. Um, For instance, there is in in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years. The known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to be truth tellers. So I am deeply concerned. 
If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Yeah, nothing really changed in, in, until about 1965, and then it all suddenly started to change. You know, um, you you had pirate radio. You suddenly, I realised that there was a lot of us, like 16 year olds, 17 year olds, and that we were going to have a lot of power in a way that people, that the other generation was getting old, and uh, it was all going to change, and you could really feel it. And the, the real beginning of that change was the Beatles. The Beatles just changed. After the Beatles, nothing was the same. Um, and, and of course, the other thing about the Beatles was that they were so big in America and around the world. And if you think about England or Britain or the UK, however you want to call it, up to that point had always been a backwater and anybody over here that was any good was generally a poor copy of somebody in America. You know, I'm not saying Cliff was a poor copy of Elvis, but he wasn't, he didn't, Cliff never really sold outside of Great Britain. I mean, a little bit, but not, not, not the way the Beatles did. And suddenly we went from being that sort of little provincial backwater to, to punching like 10 times our weight in the music amazing. business. And from it, nowhere and of course um, you, you're comparing the, or, or saying that the success of Cliff compared to the success of the Beatles England found its voice because I mean the, the Beatles were English Cliff was an American sounding yeah. voice even the, the name he chose cool man with a quiff and the Beatles yeah. were uh, rhymes military tunes play on words well the Beatles were the, the Beatles imitated Americans for a start because yeah. it was all uh it was all kind of R&B records that they were doing. If you listen to the original of Wait, Oh Yeah, Wait a Minute, Mr. Postman. Yeah, yeah. You listen to all those records, they, they're great songs. And uh, who would have thought that we'd have been able to flog the Americans their own music back to them? <laughs> I would never have thought it. And of course, all the music that people like the, like, um, the Beatles... Of course, the Beatles came along and the Stones were so hot on their heels... That um, you know, you suddenly you had the two biggest bands in the world. It was bizarre, and I can remember thinking, "How strange!" Now everyone wants to come here. You know, Hendrix, you know, knew he had to come here if he was going to make it. He couldn't make it in the states; it was too conservative. Phenomenal. That's a a phenomenal insight of the nineteen sixties, and you lived it as a young man. And what's interesting about the humility of, of life in the Northeast was that you moved as a family to Leicester. Things were slightly more prosperous down south. Well, that's, my, that's why my father moved, really. When we were, when I was 15, which would have been 64, just coming up to 65, my father saw what was going on in Leicester and he realised that it was going to be hard for, hard for my sisters to get a job up in Durham. Wow. And uh, and he thought Leicester, Leicester was a big, thriving city, yeah. 
um, back then. And it, it, I think it, it probably, even back then, had the largest black population of any of any city in, in England. I think even more so than Birmingham. Really? Yeah, which was an interesting experience because I'd, I'd never seen anybody. Yeah. Uh, the, the only black person I'd ever met up to that point was uh, was an engineer that came up from London who my dad brought home for dinner and I can remember being fascinated I couldn't take my eyes off him Leicester was so different it yeah. was full of a lot of um, you, you know uh, when when that idiot threw everybody out of uh, that African country what Idi Amin right loads of those people came to Leicester so the Indians were, yeah yeah. so there was a massive Indian community which turned out to be amazing because um, as I be, became a professional musician um, of course Indian restaurants were the only restaurants <laughs> we used to be in because ah. they, they were the only restaurants open at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, because everyone loves to work when you come from another country this is uh, appealing to my uh, my immigrant background as well yeah um, no, of course and of course now because I am from Birmingham and um, I grew up in the mid to late 70s and it was right. and we were running things man we were running it we had two tone yeah. we had heavy metal yeah we had Duran Duran we had all the sort of the art school kids as well we had the rum runner which was a little bit like the cavern except that Birmingham right we never told our story no like, like Liverpool's told its story over and over again. Oh, you know, very nice Manchester, Manchester, all those sort of blokes that come out of Manchester, all right, mate, and all that kind of thing. We never told our story in Birmingham, and we had the lot. We even had ELO and 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 Rock Wizard. We had all the Christmas number ones. We had Slade. We had all of them. We had everything. We 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 were we were massive and brilliant, and and we've never told us. We also had football as well. We won the European Cup and the the League Championship. West Bromwich Albion had West Indian players before anyone else, and they were good. Yeah. So, so, um, and, and that concentration. That um, I'm not going to call it multiculturalism because it wasn't. We were all together. That was what two tone was. So our bands were black and white. Yeah. And the idea was UB40. They were, you know, Irish Catholic guys. I'm not, I don't want to talk too much about their religion, but it was just as a purpose of saying that there were West Indian guys, Jamaicans, and um, Irish Catholics, and they were all together. The beat as well. And and we were all one. We were British yeah. together. My grammar school was like that. Yeah, I although I was the only Jew well. that you went to grammar schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did us proud. Did us good. Yeah. No, no. Birmingham was a powerhouse of music. I I worked there very briefly in the late seventies in the bullring, in a band. Um, you know, just at one point when I couldn't get a job in London, um, I I found a a job in Birmingham and I used to commute can you believe it did you find your way home I always find my way home I had a, I was driving a Reliant three wheeler <laughs> I've got a model of it downstairs I did was it yellow that was white actually mm. and funny thing is it wasn't the Reliant Robin as everyone says Robins came much later it was a Reliant Regal which is one of the earlier ones but I have to say that out of all the cars I've ever had it was one of the best because I know Jeremy Clarkson famously kept turning it over, right? You see him on the show. I never turned mine over, ever. Yeah. And I used to carry a Fender Basement 100 in the back, um, sometimes driving up to I think Vermont. he was making a point for the purposes of his, his television show. I'm sure. Whereas you were driving it because it was your most precious I had to earn a asset. Living. Yeah, you had to earn a living, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, you see, you could drive it on a motorcycle license. Oh, really? And it actually used to do like 40 odd miles to the gallon. Really? I mean, some cars claim to never do that. They never do that. They actually did. Not even at 56 miles an hour. No. You recall De Montfort Hall, where you saw Bob Dylan because you love lyrics. He is the poet of poets in pop music, isn't he? Well, he certainly was back then. He was like nothing you'd ever heard before. There's two girls at school when I was in the fifth form. They were in the sixth form. They turned me on to him. And I, I, you know, by 1966 when I saw him, you know, I was playing coffee bars and I was a sort of fairly unashamed Dylan impersonator. (laughs) Early doubles. Yeah. If you're enjoying this one, how about scrolling back for these wonderful episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State? Winston Marshall, formerly of Glastonbury headliners Mumford & Sons, forced to leave the band over Wrong Think, and now pursuing a completely new life in broadcasting and podcasting. How many people were at these biggest gigs? Maybe... 60 to 80 but some people even said 100 but I, I, I don't thousand yeah and we headlined Glastonbury as well which was that was that's right you know, that's the mecca of music and, and, and that felt but we're talking about night. literally millions of fans around the world yeah it was it was um, absolutely phenomenal phenomenal and again a, a, a miracle you know, I think the other boys in the band are, are absolutely talented and were talented and and, uh, and uh, uh, I think that their, their talent and hard work absolutely was a big part of that but I, but I also think um, we were very lucky as well and Sarai Idan one of the most courageous people I've yet spoken to on Johnny Gould's Jewish State the former Miss Universe contestant from Iraq whose life took one amazing turn all because she took a simple selfie with Miss Israel like only me and Miss Israel really know what happened that day and how it happened. And it is, you know, basically she was scared to approach me. And then I was embarrassed that she was scared to approach me. And I wanted to set a good example. Like I didn't say anything about Israel. I didn't say I support Israel. And he's like, you still need to take it down. You're hurting the Palestinian cause. I'm like, what? If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation Buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Now, you did say in the late 70s, video killed the radio star, one of the numerous ways of describing you. And it's a very current media discussion, Trevor, because 45 years later... Video is actually converging with the radio star. They've put a 4K camera in my uh, radio studio. And uh, I was host of talk radio. I'm now putting a shirt and tie on and being talk TV, whilst also hosting a radio show. So you can't say, hey, look at that, when people are listening to the radio. You've got to talk in a radio way, in a fluent way, without uh, dead air time, whilst hosting a television show. Wow. Video killed the radio star. No, it's converged. That's in, well. It's a lot. It's a lot easier than it used to be because, you know, back in '79 when I wrote that song, 
if you think about it, the only way that you get broadcast quality video would be on a massive camera of some description. Same thing with audio, you needed broadcast quality audio, you needed a two inch machine. Now, now you've got an iPhone. Phenomenal. And an iPhone will do everything. Broadcast quality picture, broad, yeah, I mean. It's, it's unbelievable. It is. In fact, it's changed the trajectory of James Bond because uh, basically uh, we've all got the uh, uh, gadgets of Q in our pocket, which does much more than Roger Moore could do in the 1970s. Yeah, but no, no, no nobody can do anything because you get reported, and me too. <laughs> if you, you know, if, if, if you go off, with, I mean, if you get up to what Bond used to get up to. <laughs> well, that's true. You can't do any of that anymore. I, I would say it's always great to catch up with you, but I have the rare privilege of seeing you pretty much every week. Yeah. at synagogue and you're a regular synagogue goer of the community in South Hampstead and it means a great deal to you you're not Jewish but uh, I wait to wish you Shabbat Shalom while you are studying the week's portion of Torah at the back in English yeah I always like to do that because it's I mean some of the Torah portions are more uh, boring than others the ones that sort of list the generations can get a bit tedious <laughs> But over, particularly over this time of year, the beginning of the thing, it's absolutely riveting. The whole Jacob and Joseph and Egypt, and I find that absolutely fascinating. Especially, um, especially the way it turns out, you know, when um, Joseph has his brothers there. I love that part, and the brothers can't figure out what's going on, and Reuben's already accused. Um, Joseph of being a pervert or say why are you so interested in my little brother are you some kind of weirdo or something you know and he says like me and my brothers you know we trashed our whole city and you better watch it because yeah. we might look like shepherds and everything but we've got some pretty serious karma going <laughs> and just right in the middle of that Joseph says I'm Joseph now there's a great bit where Reuben says what are you he, after saying all of that he said what are you doing what's going on and he says I, I always think that, God what a moment that what is drama what drama well, what a moment yeah. I bet that's the last thing that was in his head yeah you know and uh, my brother-in-law says my brother-in-law is Yaakov Osher Sinclair always says that that's what happens when you die it's a bit like um, that same moment uh, I am Joseph yeah, I, I, I don't know what that means, but probably that, that it's something that you never thought about. You know, like something beautiful. Like, well, anyway. And indeed, your belief in Judaism stems from your late wife, Jill Sinclair. You say from the front to the back of the book, none of this would be possible without the influence and drive of your late wife. And that's yeah. your musical career, but it's also your religious life too. Well, it's not so much. I was in music a long time before I met Jill, but Jill was the first person that told me I was good. Up to that point, everyone, no one had told me I was any good. Uh, I, you you know, could have consulted this fourteen-year-old at Hansworth Grammar School, but I, I wasn't on your. Well, no, I, I, no, you wouldn't have heard any of the stuff I was doing because I used to get a lot of grief because my stuff didn't sound like everybody else's. Uh, and, and not always in a good way <laughs> if you know what I mean yeah uh, and it was only when I you know after I'd been doing it for a few years and I I finally decided to give up sounding like other people because I just wasn't very good at it and I just let it go uh, 
and do what I wanted, it, it sort of um, it started to go better for me. But Jill was the first person that said, this is what you should do, you're really good at it. Up to that point, I thought it was just... I didn't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't know if I was any good at right. it. Right. Uh, in the last interview, you said, uh, I had a drill and Jill told me where I should put it. And now I said I was the drill. I was like a black and decker drill, but somebody <laughs> has to know where to drill. You know, I could go through anything. I love that. Indeed, there are a number of references, not too many, of your Jewish family life. For example, when uh, you're having a frustrating day at the office, in the studio, people are rowing, you're getting fed up with them, you've been around them too often. Oh, fantastic, it's five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I've got to go home and do Shabbat dinner. I don't know what you guys are doing. Yeah. And you can sort of escape. Oh, you can definitely do that, yeah. No, that's a, I find that a really handy thing at the end of the week to be able to stop. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, it's a great idea. You, how, how observant in Shabbat are you? I mean, for me, it's, it's oh, no, like I, it's bigger I, than me, so I have to stop. Well, I try and, st- you know, I stop working for the day, but I mean, I'm not observant in the no, way that no. some, that, that my brother-in-law was very orthodox is observant, and I'd still switch lights on and off and things like that. I can, you know, maybe at some point I could see myself not doing that, but there's no point in pretending right now. I, but I think the idea of taking the day off is an incredible idea, you know. And I can see why they make such a fuss of it, uh, about it, because it, it, it does help your... Your, your overall mental health, I think. Indeed, and even and in this digital age where people are WhatsApping you and texting you like mad and yeah. you find yourself replying to things at two in the morning and yeah. waiting for people to wake up at four and if you live in an people international world... Text you at 6am. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, but it is true, it makes Shabbat even more important in the 21st century. Yeah. Trevor, you've always remained grounded uh, in your life... And I say, you say you're a lucky man, but in life you make your own luck, don't you? Well, it's not that you make... <laughs> Jill told me a couple of great jokes you know, when I first married her. Well, one of them was the guy who keeps saying, Oh God, why can't I win the lottery? Why can't I win the lottery? You know that joke? And suddenly there's a bolt of lightning and a voice out of a cloud says... Meet me halfway, buy a ticket. Buy a ticket. Right? <laughs> I love that, right? Because to me that sums the whole thing up. Yeah. It, 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 you can dream about getting somewhere, but if you're not putting in the groundwork, I, I firmly believe that everybody gets a shot at some point. I think, you know, you might you work, you work, you work, and then suddenly everything lines up for a second or two. And suddenly you can see, ah. But you're only in that position if you've done all the work leading up to yes. it. When the luck happens. So I think that's really important. Especially in something as nebulous as the music business. The, the only trouble is, is that when you come from a background where you've seen what it's like not to have much money, it does tend to make you a bit driven. Yes. I think when people who've had money from when they were kids are much more laid back. In, in life than people like me um, who you know I, I didn't have anything to much till I was 30 and, and so you're always afraid of going back there and so it makes you work a bit harder um, the other joke my late wife told me that I didn't get the first time <laughs> I heard it because I didn't understand lots of things was the bagel seller you know the big snowy street in New York and there's a bagel seller 
selling bagels at one end, and the little figure comes out one of the houses and walks through all the snow up to, you know, and it's a guy who comes up the bagel seller. He says, two platzels and an onion bagel, please. Yeah. The bagel seller says, uh, terrible weather. The guy says, yeah. And he said, you married? And the guy says, you think my mother would send me out on a day like today? <laughs> I didn't get that at first. Yes. <laughs> I suppose you have to have a Jewish wife <laughs> to, to you understand. Have to understand. You have yeah, to understand, yeah. <laughs> You've, you've had the platform and opportunity to work with some of the greatest stars. Let's just focus in on the records that you made on the Flowers in the Dirt album with Paul McCartney. Oh, right, Paul McCartney, yeah. That must have been wonderful because obviously you experienced them. You were a bit younger than uh, the Beatles. You were watching them become stars. <coughs> Yes. And then later on in life, obviously, you get to work with him as a peer. And Well, I wouldn't say he was a peer. I got to work with him. Guys like, like uh, Paul, who are in band, big artists from bands, if they want to keep going, if, if you're that kind of an artist, you have to keep reinventing yourself. Or you have to keep coming up with something new. And, and so they always, they're always interested in who, who is um, the latest producer. Who you know? Because who knows? Who knows that they might be able to benefit from working with that person. I liked him, you know. I liked him, and uh, I liked working with him. But I mainly liked the, the times when we kept it short, when it was two days. You know, I liked that because well, because you don't get sucked into somebody else's world. Okay. You know, normally people would come to my world to yeah. work, my studios. For me to go away from home and go and stay in a hotel and work in somebody else's studio. It's a bit of a pain in the neck, even when you're young, you know. Um, Paul's, Paul's got a beautiful studio somewhere on a hill in Rye, you know, with these lovely windows. Beautiful place. Looking out. And I think the first thing I did was close all the blinds and said, let's imagine we're in Denmark Street. I just wanted to get a sense of urgency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather than everyone being too laid back and the days stretching ahead. Because it's a bit like a casino in your studios, because... There are no windows. You're so intensely into the music. You're listening through monitors, which, of course, are better than domestic speakers. And you come out, you know, you start on a Wednesday morning and you come out and it's, oh, it's Friday afternoon. That's happened to you, hasn't it? I've done that a couple of times, but, <laughs> but it's easier to do that if you do a lot of cocaine. Right. Normally, the guys that do cocaine, they'll keep going for days. The problem is, is that if you keep going longer than a couple of days, what you... And they've heard you talk about cocaine, so... Exactly. Um, if you work for longer than a few days, you start to make some bad mistakes. Right. You're just bad stuff. I've, I've, uh, I've seen it. And I've, to some degree, been involved in it because I've had to be there with people who were lit up. Right. Um, no, no, I, I, I did do the occasional two-day one, but... Uh, but in a way, it's always good to get a good night's sleep and to get away from it. Uh, there's a great bit in Keith Richards' book where he said the longest stretch he ever did was seven days without sleeping. And for some reason, he decided that he was going to completely reorganise his cassette collection. And he was doing really well till the seventh day. Um, he suddenly woke up and he had blood all over his head. He just passed out and hit his wow. head on the floor. Right. 
Yeah. So don't leave it seven days. <laughs> don't leave it seven um, days. There's a lovely anecdote as you're preparing for the concert and you're sharing a, a dressing room with Seal because he's the most affable and easygoing guy, the two of you together. And um, the police dogs come in to sniff around and the police dog uh, he has a sniff around and the police dog handler goes, not tonight, Fido. No, because the police dog went straight over to my bag, poked its nose in and put its tail up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy said, not today, Fido. We're looking for bombs. Yeah. yeah. Thank God for that. Yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> it's so often true that most successful people are the kind of people. Paul McCartney was kind to you, wasn't he? He said some very lovely things oh, to you. Oh, no, Paul, Mac- Paul, Paul was great. Paul was great fun to work with because you get loads of Beatles anecdotes. I remember one he told me, uh, well, it was me and Steve Lipson. Sometimes it was hard to work because once he got talking about the Beatles, we'd just want to sit and listen. Yeah. Um, I remember he said he found this uh, old set list and it had, on it, it had Bob. It, it had the songs. He knew all the songs apart from one. And it was Barber. It said a barber, and he was thinking about. It. And then he remembered what it was. He said it was John Lennon. Would would uh, and it was in the set list. Would go on the mic and go a bar 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 a bar 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 black sheep. <laughs> and that was a song. <laughs> a short, the shortest Beatles the shortest track. Beatles song. Yeah, ever. yeah. Just spooling back to the Reliant Robin. And um, the car you had subsequently later, which I'm trying to remember, may have been in Austin, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, you were in your late 20s and someone said to you, oh, you know, you're really working hard. You're driving around in this beat up car. And you said something approximately like, look, you know, I really believe in this. In the rock music, I'm going to pull the jackpot one. I'm going to pull the fruit machine. And one day the jackpot will land. It was something like that, wasn't it? No, it's this girl, girl that was living in the house that I lived in said to me, what are you doing? Look at you, you're 29. You don't have two pennies to rub together. You're driving around in an old banger that keeps breaking down. What do you think is going to happen to you? I mean, what are you going to do? And I said to her, look, you know, you, you probably wouldn't understand this, but I'm pulling the handle of a slot machine and I know I've just got to keep pulling it and it's going to pay out. It's going to pay out the jackpot. So at the moment, all I'm interested in is that. You know, pulling the handle of the slot machine. You know, I was just making tracks. I knew sooner or later I'd get, I'd do something that would break through. But uh, you've got no idea when, you know, because nobody. It's one of the things about working in a business like the music business is, is you don't have a boss in the same way that people in the normal world have a boss, and the boss will tell them, "Hey, you've got to do this better, or that's crap, or you got it wrong." Nobody tells you that. In, in the music business they don't say you know I mean the critics will tell you all kinds of things but and some you know a lot of the time critics are right but they're not always right so you you have to you have to make up your own sort of standard you know kind of thing of, of, of what you're going to you know aspire to I suppose and uh, I you know for, for, for me it was I mean for for me and Jeff you know um, Video Killed the Radio Star we worked on it really hard because we always knew it was our, it was a really good shot you know what I mean like it had something about it yeah and and by the point by the time we wrote 
Bruce Woody and I wrote that song, I'd been sort of making records for four years, you know, for publishers, for people like that. And uh, so, you know, I was ready, but, um, but we were really, really lucky because we wrote the song, produced it ourselves, uh, and it was a huge hit, you know, so like 12 million, yeah. 16 countries. Yeah. A lot of people are in the, in the band and they'll be part of a hit, but they didn't write it. Uh, if, you, if you didn't write your own song, man, you're not going to earn much money. No. In fact, you're more than likely to end up with less money than you started with because you, unless you're really sussed, you won't pay the tax and they'll come after you for <laughs> tax. Um, so we, we were lucky. So we went from... We went from... Uh, nothing to sort of 70 miles an hour almost immediately but afterwards one of the things that, 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 that often used to occur to me was that I was glad that I was um, I was glad that by the time I got a hit record I'd spent four and a half five years doing it because at least I had a bit of an idea about what I was doing I knew a bit about it yes. um, and I've seen other people fluke one early on get a fluke and then spend half the rest of their lives trying to recreate it, you know? Yeah. Because they didn't know how they got it. All things were meant to be. Well, things are meant to be. So by the time I'd, you know, by the time I'd had a hit record, I'd made a lot of records. And and so when I actually moved over to be a producer, at the instigation of my late wife, um, I kind of knew what I was doing, kind of. Nobody yeah, really yeah, does. Yeah. But I... I had a lot more idea than most. Yeah, you've got to market test your uh, your work, haven't you? You've got to know what flies, and uh, particularly these days with social media, reaction is instantaneous. Oh, instantaneous, yeah. Oh, wow. The other thing that amazed me, because don't forget, I didn't really have a hit till I was, you know, I was 30, 29, 30. I, lo- I looked younger than I was, um, which is handy. Um <laughs> Uh, so the thing about being uh, successful at a slightly more mature age is... Yeah, you don't go mad in the same no. way. I think if it had happened to me when I was 18 or 19, I would have uh, got... You know, I don't know. It, yeah. it might have made me pretty arrogant. I don't know. But because I was 30, I think I was a bit more grown up. And things were different back in 79, 80. You know, like the live scene... Doing stuff live wasn't very easy, uh, and and people's attitudes were different. You know, Jeff Lynne, a famous Birmingham guy, That's it. went on the road with two twenty-four track um, analog machines locked together, uh, and so half of the record that you were hearing on stage was coming from uh, these two machines. Which you know you can't blame them for doing that when when something like Out of the Blue. Yeah, it's, a, it's a complicated sound, isn't well, it? Well, it's a so, big sound, yeah. and it relies on a big orchestra. Uh, but he was about the only person doing that. Everybody else was having a problem recreating what they were doing in the studio live. And now it's much easier. Trevor, one of the most consistent parts of your career is that you can't put a Trevor Horn record in a box. You always try to create a sound from your perceived image of the song, you know, I'm thinking in stark contrast to the hit machine of Stock Aiken and Waterman. There was a very specific style. Yeah. They just changed the singer. For example, Belfast Child and Two Tribes. <laughs> Two very, very, very different records. 
Yeah, both about conflict. Yes. Um, yes. But you're right, they're very, very different. Um, Belfast Child was an arrangement of a, an Irish folk song called She Moves Through the Fair. So sadly I watched her move here and move there. Um, two Tribes is a little bit like a Russian folk tune. You think about it, it sounds mm. almost like the Attic, but mm. sort of, um, minor, minor. I'll never listen to it in the same way again. Yeah, very Russian sounding uh, opening uh, for that. When you talk about Stuart Walker and Aitken, some bit, look, some bit, everybody does whatever it is they can do, you know, and there's no point in. Like you can't moan about what other people do. Because I'm not criticising. Oh no, no, no! I'm, I, I'm no. neither am I. That's no. the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Because when Stuart Waldman and Aiken were very big, they were never the kind of records that musicians liked, right? And so musicians were always moaning about Stuart Waldman and Aiken. And I, I used to say, you don't. If you think, if you think it's crap, why don't you try doing one? Mm. You know, look how much money they earn from it. See if you can do one of them. Yeah. I couldn't. Um, so you do what you can do well. And and they enjoyed doing dance records. The thing is, if if a song that you do isn't a dance record, it's 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 that much harder for it to be uh, for it to sell. Something like Belfast Child, to be honest, would have only been a hit with Simple Minds. If anybody else had released Belfast Child just out of the blue, it wouldn't have done anything. But, you know, because there was an established band with a fan base and all that kind of stuff, then it, then then we could get away with it. Stockwell, Water and Naked were constantly making records with people who had no following, no uh, weren't known. And so it had to be a dance record because dance records have a function, you know. Mm -hmm. they, they're played for people to dance to. Dancing is where what people do when they're in the mating part of their life, when they're looking to have children, you know? And uh, and so there's a, there's a very definite function for the music. Anything that isn't a dance record, you you know, your group or whoever did it, it better have a following, otherwise you, you won't do anything with it. Indeed, and... Something that I think Belfast Child appeals to the body of work of the Simple Minds is it, it took them away from the U2 sort of genre. I mean, they were, uh, that's where they kind of started, wasn't it? In that sort of early 80s, early 80s very yeah. extended reverb, that Celtic sound. Um, they were in that to start with, Waterfront. Um, Promise you a miracle. Yeah. Yes, they were quite strange. I wouldn't. I mean, a lot of people compared them to U2 because the, the similarity was, you know, U2 were an Irish band and, you know, Simple Minds was a Scots band. Uh, but as bands, they were profoundly different. Yes. Um, I thought, um, you know, I thought Simple Minds could have. What happened? I mean, I mean, they they were they were kind of neck and neck for a while. But then you two came up with uh, uh, that song. New Year's Day. No, New Year's Day was all right. It was a sort of setup, but it was the the big one uh, in the name of love. Ah, yes. Yeah, that was a game changer. And mm -hmm. then after the after that, they they had another one that was just as good. And 
and the you know I mean that opening tune uh, where the streets have no name mm -hmm. that's a, that was a really good one um, especially if you saw it in a hundred thousand seater not seater stadium or like a race course in America with the, you know the massive stage and mm -hmm. that was their opening song mm -hmm. boy it was it was a great opener you know mm -hmm. that sort of opening and the pace of it yeah um, Although there are some hallmarks of your production which were repeated around the 80s. So, Owner of a Lonely Heart seemed like a cousin of the art of noise. And indeed, there was some Fairlight activity. We'll talk about the Fairlight. There, there, there was some similarity, wasn't there, in terms of the drum beats and in terms of the reverb and production that, that came from the art of noise. And also, Chris Squire's dumb... Dum dum, uh, which is a, a hallmark, isn't it, of uh, of of your music at, at that time? Well, there, there <laughs> was, there was uh, that dum dum dum. Yeah, Chris Squire. Yeah, we used that on a few things. It, it's actually on on the track called "Leave It" on Nine One Two Five. Um, that Chris Squire sample came from there. Um, what you would say, the art of noise, really. I think in sort of 82, 83, 84, um, I was sort of doing a lot of whiz-bangs. I used to call them whiz-bangs, certain kind of production where yeah. stuff jumped out and whizzed across the stereo. Uh, and we did it on the Art of Noise and we did it with um, with Owner of a Lonely Heart. I did, it was just one of those things that started out be because the original demo of Owner of a Lonely Heart had a mini-moog on it. And you know the, um, and funny enough, the mini mood played pretty much the same lines that I used. But it was a mini mood, you know, like a mini mood sound. And what I said to the band was, why don't we take all these mini mood licks and we'll do them with the wrong sound. We'll we'll do them with weird sounds like, and they were like, what? Like what? I said, well, like an orc stab for a kickoff. Orc <laughs> um, stab was something that we were using a fair bit. Yeah. But we were, what we would do is, is, is we'd hand play the orc stab, da, da, li, li, um, and then double track it on the other side. Da, da, li, um, so, so it was both sides. But because it had been played by hand, it wasn't perfectly in time with itself. So it had that kind of slight shift where you were aware that it was two different sort of takes and then we'd put two different kinds of reverb one on one side and one on the other we'd take a stereo plate put it in mono we had this thing we used to a very early EMT digital plate we used to call it the crash box because it was really good at making a sort of crash reverb like a very loud short reverb and we do all that kind of stuff and record that with that reverb on it but just mono you know uh, and then we mix the whole track we have all of that extreme left and right and then we'd mix the track while we were mixing the track we'd listen to it in mono that way and that stuff that was extreme left and right would always drop a little bit in mono and so we'd always push it up just a little bit too loud uh, so you could hear it clearly in mono as well as in stereo and then when you put it back to stereo, of course, it was pretty loud. 
the whiz bangs were, were, were really loud. And I was always falling foul of the mastering engineer. Because every time I went in with something new, he'd say, what have you done this time then? And I'd go, oh yeah, well this has got a few whiz bangs on it. Uh, and the first thing he did, would he, he'd do this EQ that pulls everything in a bit. Right. Trying to, because when you were cutting it to Are you talking about compressing it? No, it wasn't <clears> compressing. <throat> uh, it's... Uh, I used to fight it all the time. Please, well, can't, do we have to do that much of that? Uh, it, it, it's a kind of EQ, elliptical EQ, I think he called it. And it pulls the sides of the stereo in a little bit. Because he's, he was like, you know, it, it, the record won't play back. Mm, mm. You've gone too far this time. <laughs> uh, so it was always a fight. And it was such a relief when uh, CDs came along. Because then you could do whatever you wanted. Mm. Um, without the same problem. Mm. But cutting it onto vinyl was always tough. Right, that's In fact, so interesting. looking back on when I started... I think learning how to get stuff to sound right on vinyl was the hardest lesson. And and it was really, it was all to do with the arrangement of the music, surprisingly enough. Much less to do with the sound of, of, of the overdubs rather than, rather than what they were actually playing, you know? Um, if I can explain that. Like, for instance, you want to hear the bass guitar in a in a song it's much better if you have a song that has a very simple bass line like boom ba boom you'll hear that boom ba boom but if it has a very comp if you have a very complicated bass part you're much less likely to hear it right so I, I you know I learned the hard way you know going in with going into to cut tapes onto onto acetates and hearing them kind of not sounding very good there's three things the rhythm the music and the voice and really I, I learned after a while that you could only do so much with those three things and then and then it's counterproductive so you had to be able to hear you know you had to have the voice and then something that went with the voice and then the drums you know it was like um, anything fancy after that was much harder to get away with um and I can't even, I can't even explain it to you. But it it came from years of listening to stuff. Nowadays, you know, I hear things, and most things sound good because most records are made from pre-recorded sounds, and it's almost like making food from packets. You know, it's it's always going to taste pretty good, never terrible, but <laughs> it's never going to be rivetingly fantastic. And that's what records are like now. So that's why when you reimagined the 80s mm-hmm. with that delightful record, I mean, it's a beautiful record, yeah. where you remade Maggie Mae by Rod Stewart in a slightly more reflective way. What, that, was, um, that was my last big record. That was Rod Stewart from the heart, I think it was. It, no, just sound, it was a very similar time. It was just it, after it. It was Apologies. Just, no, it's fine. I'll tell you what that was. They, they they wanted to do an orchestral Rod Stewart record. Because they'd heard you're reimagining the 80s orchestra? Yeah, oh yeah. they oh, really, such a great record. They really liked that. And they, they, they um, and because I worked with Rod, I managed to get the gig. Um, and what was really, what was interesting about that, the Maggie May, the version of Maggie May, yeah. 
came from an unplugged that he'd done 10 years ago that had been released uh, but since that unplugged was released there's a lot more that we can do with stuff you know post-production and they sent me they sent me like that performance there, there was a few there was a few versions that came from this unplugged and they weren't bad but they, they were okay uh, and we did some stuff where we I won't go into detail about what we actually did but we but we took a lot of the instruments off and replaced them worked on Rod's voice a fair bit and I think they were pretty astounded at how well it came out I think yeah, I think Rod's manager at the time suddenly realised man we got a vault full of this if you can fix it up like this you know uh, and it was a nice version of it I remember the hardest track on that album was Stay With Me um, to try and put an orchestra on Stay With Me wasn't easy mm. especially since they couldn't find the multi-track but then we, we got some new software that, that, that could make that could pull a multi-track out of a stereo with huge caveats but it could do it up to a point DJs use, this, use it now um that software but we had one of the first versions of it because they developed it at Abbey Road mm -hmm. and we were able to because uh, Stay With Me is a brilliant record done by a, a guy a fantastic engineer he worked with the Beatles um, I should know his name it should be on the uh, it'll come to me in a second engineer producer really good old school uh he worked, yeah. He worked with the Beatles, and he he did um, he did the first version of Let It Be album. Oh God, what's his name? Um, An engineer did, or producer? Engineer did the Stones as well. He was he became a producer, but he was primarily an engineer. Type. Glenn Johns. Glenn Johns, that's who it was. Uh, the actual record, you know, even you know now, I mean, it was probably done somewhere in the sixties. I had nothing but admiration for it. Uh, the engineering of it and, and you know I say that as some you know because I've been making records for a long time and uh, what it is it's sort of perfect and then to go and have to put a 30, 40 piece orchestra on it <laughs> seemed like sort of sacrilege especially when we couldn't find the multi-track because you know you can't just plonk the orchestra on top of it it won't sound right it, it, it'll kill it you know um in a way, you have to carve a notch into the record for mm -hmm, the orchestra. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this new software let us carve a notch into it. In oh, lovely. What a lovely description. Cool way. So we could fit the strings in. Because I had, you know, I had one sort of maxim with that album. That we're not, we're going to put big orchestra on this, but we're not going to spoil anything. We're not going to spoil it for the sake of the orchestra. You know what I mean? So that, that sort of controlled everything I did on that record. And... Going back to reimagining the 80s, Owner of a Lonely Heart has absolutely everything in it. First of all, the audacity to re-record from scratch a, a fantastic record. You talk about playing Parade of the Tin Soldiers over and over and over and over again. I'm telling you, um, the relationship with Owner of a Lonely Heart and me, I, I, I mean, when I first heard it, I couldn't believe what I was listening to. It yeah. was so fresh. And I still have it. I still play it. It's my favourite pop mm. record ever made. I love it. 
and beatbox, which is the sort of the DNA of uh, of that time, isn't it? That yeah. record, that, that beatbox. And, oh no, it was. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, yeah. it's almost the the sort of the the starting point of all Art of Noise records. And yeah. and then you remade it with the Hammond organ in it. Oh, Hammond and, organ and, still, and a yeah. few dum 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 still in there. You pop a few dum dum dums in there, a little retro. Oh right, dum 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 here and there. I've done another version of it. Too. Have you? Oh yeah. Well, this has it been released? No, it's, it'll come out later on this year. It's really, oh, really? good, actually. It's Rick Astley singing it. Is it? Yeah. Yes, you were in the studio with him a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, he came. He's coming back, but it's good. He sang it really well. It's totally different. Wow. It, it, it surprised me how well it turned out, actually. You mentioned how rows in bands can cause such destructiveness. And this is the story of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I remember, I think, the last sentence of your chapter on Frankie was, oh, what a waste. They could have been massive. And even playing today, they should be around, but they're not. Well, yeah, they could have made a good living out of it. I, I mean, they, they had an American manager, a guy called Rod. I'll leave it at Rod. <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> okay. his second name. And he was... Ron, Ron was a real pro... And I can remember standing with him at Wembley and he, he, he looking at me and saying, can you believe what these guys are doing? And I was like, what can I do? He said, do you think they understand what an amazing thing they've been given? And I said, no, no. I don't think so. Mm. He said, you know, they, they, they're going to they're gonna just throw it away. Mm. I said, what can I do? I yeah, tried. What can you do? You tried. Well, you didn't have to try. It was an yeah. incredible, incredible time. And, uh, of course, it was uh, a personal triumph for you because you, as the producer of that tomb of records, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, and owner of A Lonely Heart, made you an American number one and British number one at the same time with two different records. Oh, no, that was amazing. amazing was that? Huh? I don't think anyone's managed to do that since, that I can recall. Although maybe Ed Sheeran did, I don't know. Maybe he did. On the flip side of, of bands with ambition and with a focus, and you described him in a, a wonderful way, you compared him to Bob Dylan in terms of lyrics, was ABC and their band manifesto, which um, you, you took with you, didn't you? You thought, well, that's a good idea. I, I mean, it, well, it, they had a real future focus, didn't, didn't they? Well, I, I think what they taught me was that if, you know... That was the problem with the bubbles. Jeff and I never had a manifesto. We never even thought about it. We just made this, made a few tracks, and we knew about record production, but we certainly didn't know about being artists, you know, because we'd, we'd both been musicians all our lives, not like working musicians rather than, you know, artists uh, or whatever yeah. they're called. And I think, I think, you know, also, you know, when, you, when you're nearly 30 and you haven't had any success, and then you suddenly have this massive success like we did, at first you're, you can be a little bit naive, uh, like you can think that journalists are there to be friendly, you know, and things like that, right. and end up saying things that you shouldn't say. And you've got to remember that uh, every interview is uh, going to be heard by lots of people, so keep, you know don't go sounding off about anything if you don't want it to be out there. And indeed, these days, recorded forever. Recorded forever, yeah. Oh, these days. Yeah, I these days. Go there. Yeah, you um, get cancelled. You get cancelled. The stuff yeah. you said in 1986. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, but I mean, unfortunately, if you're going to start that whole thing, you're going to have to cancel just about every figure from history. Everybody, yeah. 
Exactly. Um, so, you know, you start out and you, you're a little bit naive. What amazed me about ABC, and I should have, I should have known it. I should have seen it quite early on because there was a moment where, where one of the Boggles tracks from the second album was a hit in Holland, a track called Lenny. It was a bit of a hit in Holland, so I had to go to Holland to promote it on TV. And of course, the Dutch guys had said, uh, "Will you be bringing a band with you?" You know. Right. And I thought, and I said to the ABC guys, "You want to come to Holland, be on the TV It'll show?" Be the Boggles. Boggles. This was just as we were doing. How funny. After, just as as we'd finished Poison Arrow, and they were like, "Yeah, we're oh, really?" Up they said, it. "Yeah." And they came to Holland and they did such a great job of miming to this track. <laughs> you know what I mean? Martin. What, Martin Fry as well? Martin, How yeah. Lovely. Martin, How Stephen, <laughs> Mark and Dave. And they looked terrific. They, everything. They, they, they just had it all down. <laughs> uh, whereas, so you know, funny. I was wearing crap clothes and I, I looked like a producer who was trying to be an artist. <laughs> They were artists. Oh, they look cool as well. They, they look cool. really cool. Yeah. Um, I always remember that show because I, I, they fixed up a couple of interviews with me for me. Oh, the first one was a journalist and he was like, well, the thing's not looking so good for you, huh? And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. He said, well, the record, this new record hasn't done very well. And I said, ah, oh, I don't care. I'm a producer now. I'm, that's where my main thrust is. Oh. If you notice, that's what I'm doing. I'm not so interested in this no. Yeah, that sort of Gerald Ratner kind of frequency there, slagging off the product. No, I wasn't slagging off the product. I've no, moved on. No, I was saying I'm not so interested in this aspect of, of being course, an artist. Of course, that can be misinterpreted, like I interpreted as a journalist there. Well, no, what the way I interpreted it was this guy was trying to get under my skin. Right. You know, and normally if people start off like that it's often best to just forget the whole thing and leave them to it and move on uh, you know like <laughs> you know. Uh, Trevor Horn I've had a, a this has been a lovely interview thank you so much for your time and reflecting so deeply on so many themes okay. and in our collective memory thank you very much indeed right. for joining us on Johnny well, Gould's Jewish State Hope you enjoy it. Okay. It's been lovely. Thanks, man. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education.